This season of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted with zero alcohol, zero sugar, and zero calories, Seedlip spirits solve the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, for the month, or forever. As a non-drinker, it never feels great when the only options are water or sugary sodas and mocktails. And now you can skip the hangovers without feeling left out when it comes to your social life. Head to seedlipdrinks.com and use the code SOBERCURIOUS for 20% off your next purchase. And follow at seedlipsocial on Instagram for more ways to enjoy Seedlip. And welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about living a more conscious, connected and present life. I am your host, Ruby Warrington. My guest this week is incredible Victoria Moran, an author, activist and podcaster who has been a pioneer of vegan living since her first book on the subject was published in 1985. That's way back before Oatly and the Impossible Burger and veganism even being seen as remotely cool. Victoria has since written 14 books on the subject, as well as being the host of her podcast, Main Street Vegan, since 2014. And I invited her on the show to talk about what she sees as the common ground between being veg curious and sober curious. She's also a non-drinker, having decided at age 19 that she didn't want to risk becoming addicted to alcohol, having already had a history of compulsive eating and gotten sober from that in Overeaters Anonymous. We get into all of that too, as well as fascinating subjects such as what exactly makes cheese as addictive as cocaine, emotional conditioning versus rational thinking when it comes to our addictions to food and drink, and why veganism can also be thought of as the good karma diet. She is smart, vibrant, and an incredible example of somebody who has cheerfully chosen a life of integrity over comfort and instant gratification. This is Victoria Moran. Victoria, it's wonderful to be seeing you again. So, it is so wonderful soon. to see you, lovely Ruby. <laughs> and um, yeah, we've been our we've been meditation accountability buddies for I think about ten days now. We have, and this has been a tough time for me. My husband's in the hospital, mm. and I've been going there every day. And believe me, if we weren't doing this accountability thing, I would say look meditation world just doing one a day is plenty but remarkably because we're doing this I'm getting in those two meditations at a time when I've never needed them more that's great and I feel exactly the same actually I don't have a husband in hospital that's good But it's just been real reminded to me that how when we buddy up and we support each other through creating new healthy habits as much as changing unhealthy old habits I think it has such huge impact doesn't yeah, it? it's, yeah it's so fun and when you were over here doing my podcast you noted I believe that it was the first day of Lent and seemed like a very interesting day to make this commitment and I believe that what you said was so instead of giving something up let's add something on and I love that because I love the idea of add some, adding something on anytime you want to make a change. Absolutely and I think that applies very much to my sober curious approach to not drinking which is let's not think about the thing we're removing but let's think about what we're creating space for in our lives and what we want to bring into our lives as a result of not drinking and I wonder is that um, is that is can we apply a similar approach to stopping eating meat and to veganism? Because I think for so many people, this is 
you know, they may fall at the first hurdle of like, what, I have to give up all of these things that I find so delicious? No way. Like, what? How, what's a different way to frame that change in your life? Oh, I think it absolutely is about discovering new things. And I have to say, even though I've been vegan a really long time, I was an early adapter, so I've been vegan for 36 years. And truly, at that time, there were not a lot of things. There, there weren't non-dairy milks in grocery stores. In fact, in this country, there was a guy in Ohio who sold soy powder, or at least we thought it was soy powder because it came in a plastic bag. It could have been talcum, but you know we lived, so I presume that it was soy milk. But you know we didn't have Beyond Burgers. We didn't have ice cream and pizza and all these things that people can choose to eat now. So all that is there. And you know it's interesting, Ruby, because I don't really eat most of those things. I do consume non-dairy milk, but I don't really have a lot of the processed foods because I'm kind of a health nut. But I'm so happy that they're there because the idea of, oh, you can never... It's just a very different mindset from, oh yeah, all that stuff's there. You know, you can have some anytime you want it. And just knowing that means that you don't have to have it or you don't have to have it unless you're stuck in a small airport, <laughs> you know, and there, and there aren't a lot of choices. So yes, I think that to me, going vegetarian, going vegan is a celebration. It's a celebration of life, uh, of the wonderful uh, capacity for vitality of our own bodies, to celebrate these incredible animals that most of us, when we're just ordering dinner, we're not thinking about animals. But the fact is, they play a bigger role in one's dinner, unless it happens to be a vegan dinner, than than anybody or anything else, and, and, and the planet, and then the climate, and to just know that you're contributing to all these things, it's a real uplift. Mm, absolutely. And I think focusing on those benefits, or the beneficial reasons that you might be choosing this, can be so much, so motivating, and so helpful, yeah. when faced with, oh, what do I, how do I explain it to my family at Thanksgiving? when they had to make a special meal for me or those things that typically, again, I think would tr do tend to trip people up. Yes. Yeah. And, well, I think it's very interesting. It's a little bit like the, the AA philosophy and, and my background, as we'll probably get to, is Overeaters Anonymous that I've been a part of for almost 40 years. And it's this idea of, no, just, just not now, J just not today. And we don't really have to worry about Thanksgiving when it's April. <laughs> and we don't have to worry about our trip to Argentina in 2022. Because when it's the day, this is what's so fascinating. We have so much strength in the day. And everything is just fine in the day. We have complete capacity to deal with what is before us in a 24-hour period. But oh my gosh, that Thanksgiving nine months from now, it can just be terrifying. So you don't have to go there. That's such a good point. I was just walking back across the Williamsburg Bridge with my husband yesterday, and he's going through a bit of a future tripping, like, what do I want to do with my career? Why do I want to live? Like, just those, those things you can get into. And I was just like, how about we just worry about, like, that stir fry I'm making for dinner? Ooh. And, like, you know, what we're going to have for dinner tonight and just trust that life will present us with... yes the opportunities that are meant for us exactly the capacity to overcome whatever problems we may be faced with and the inspiration 
to know what's the next right move as mm, well. Exactly. And you just remind me of one of my favorite phrases that I, I did learn in 12 Steps, and that is to do the next indicated thing. And that has never not served me in any circumstance, especially when there's a lot of stress and, and I'm not sitting around in my wonderful meditative wise woman state that I sometimes think I am, but when I'm just flustered and frazzled and I really don't know what to do next to just bring it back to what is the next indicated thing and I've never been so flustered that I didn't know the next right thing it's like somebody described it once as driving down a dark highway and your headlights are not going to shine all the way to your destination but they shine far enough that you can keep going I get so freaked out driving on highways at night because <laughs> I so I it's really hard to trust actually that I'm not about to crash into something. But anyway, getting off track a bit there. Um, I want to come back to yeah, 37 years as a vegan, and you actually put something on Instagram the other day, the cover of your first book, which came out in 1985, and I love that, and it just really made me think about what a pioneer you have been um, in terms of spreading the the vegan message, a lifestyle which now is becoming increasingly trendy. And you must have just seen that kind of um, unfold over the decades, I suppose. Um, And I'm just, I'm very curious what it was like to be very vocal about this subject in 1985. Because I was really (laughs) thinking that was like the decade of greed is good. Yes. And you know conspicuous consumption and haute cuisine and just excess on every level did you get pushback were people excited and embracing of the message and how did you what gave you the the courage and the the conviction to oh. stand up and make a stand for well, veganism back when it was very unfashionable yeah well I had been trying to do it for a really long time I went vegetarian at 19 and I may as well out myself and say that was 1969. And I knew about veganism maybe two, three years later, and it made perfect sense to me. You know, a lot of people don't know that for a cow to give milk, she has to give birth. And then she's separated from the baby. And you know, we always want to have it all, but for a cow, having it all is to be with her baby. (laughs) And that just broke my heart. And yet I couldn't not consume it. And the thing with the same with eggs, that baby boys are not needed in egg operations. And so they're killed uh, right after hatching in, in very terrible, awful ways. I didn't want to be part of that. But I was part of that. And I would have stretches, you know, and I think people that are sober curious would relate to this, because I would have stretches when I was not binge eating. And when I wasn't binge eating, I could be vegan, but then I would go on an eating binge, and even then I would sometimes try to be vegan, and I would stand in the convenience store late at night trying to get my stash, and I would read the labels, and I would get just almost to the end, and I'd see whey or egg albumin, and it was so frustrating and and difficult, and then I would just throw my hands up and say, oh, for heaven's sakes, I I want uh, cheddar and and Haagen-Dazs. And so it was difficult. So for me, I had to get recovery for my binge eating disorder before I had the power of choice about what I would eat over the long term. So even when I researched that first book that you mentioned, Compassion, the Ultimate Ethic, it was a um, 
college fellowship. It sent me to the UK to study vegans because it was so different then. There were so few vegans in this country that people actually gave me money to cross an ocean and go study them where there were more and they were closer together. But at that time, I was still not consistently vegan. I, I did that research in 1981, and I finally made it uh, in late 1983 to, to really say, you know, this, this is it for me. And certainly, I have not been 100% flawlessly perfect all these years, because I know that I put some half and half in my coffee, you know, back in the 80s. <laughs> But even in this era of, well, nobody can get by with anything and we don't forgive anybody for what they even did in their youth, it's like, you know what? Perfection is for some other phase of life. It's not for life on earth right now. So that's what I did. And yes, what I see now is unbelievable. And it's interesting that you talked about the 80s. I think I was looking at that whole kind of Wall Street world from the outside. I was um, married in the earlier part of, of the 80s, and then I was widowed. I was a young widow. And so there was a lot of just trying to make ends meet and things. So I wasn't really thinking so much about the, you know, cocoa van <laughs> and all those things that I wasn't eating. So I think I was still a little bit drawing from the 70s and the brown rice and granola and kind of did it that way until uh, we had the 90s and John Robbins and Diet for a New America. And then veganism started to really put itself on the map. Mm, in a way that I feel like that 80s decade of excess was such a backlash to the progress that was made in the <laughs> 70s in terms of just cultivating a more compassionate, more open-minded, more conscious sort of worldview. Yeah. There was a backlash. And we were experiencing, you could say we're experiencing something similar to that. Oh, now. absolutely. <laughs> Just more. Yeah, exactly. At a heightened sort of level in a way. I'd love if you could speak a bit about more about your experience of Overeaters Anonymous. Yes. Um, and also, I think some people look at a you know, a vegan lifestyle as just another way of restricting food. Mm -hmm. And some people, I think, can come to it from a place of disordered eating. And I know there's sort of two questions there, but yeah, if you could speak a bit more about your, your experience of Overeaters Anonymous, because I think food addiction is something that's very difficult for people to overcome because food is yes. an essential part of life. Exactly. Um, but then also how you have, how, how your disordered eating didn't sort of get mixed up with your veganism as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, my recovery from compulsive eating and my ability finally to become vegan really went hand in glove. They supported each other way back then, and I feel that they support each other every day now. So I know that a lot of people say, particularly with people who have done restriction, who've done the anorexia, you know, bulimia to an extent, um, that veganism is just a way to, if one is thinking back in that old antique four food groups model, you get to cut out half the food. Woo, that's an anorexia, anorexic stay at the park. And yet I believe that if someone is dealing with an eating disorder, if they're in recovery, if they're in treatment, if they're serious, that to deny them the opportunity to 
be able to eat in a way that is so health promoting, that is so soul fulfilling, that brings about so much integrity in the life of someone who really does not want to harm other beings to say, oh, no, you can't do that because you've been anorexic. I think that's too bad. And I, and I do understand that veganism could be used as, as a, a way to practice a disease. But these diseases are, like they say in AA, cunning, baffling, and powerful. And so they're going to try to get in through any door they can. But I think that overall, being vegan is so uplifting for the individual. And I think it makes anyone who does it feel so good about themselves that it's really part of healing. So in my case, and my disorder was overeating, binge eating disorder, I did have some over dieting tendencies at a few points in, in my disease. At one point I was doing Weight Watchers when it was a diet and everybody had to eat the same thing. And it was a pretty substantial diet and they let you have unlimited free vegetables. Well, only a real food addict can make a feast of unlimited free vegetables. I mean, heads and heads of cabbage smeared with mustard. Not exactly appealing to the average person, but if that's all I had, that was gonna do it for me. So I was actually binge eating and losing weight. And I got down to 94 pounds at one point and thought, I'm cured. Now I realize some people would say, oh, 94 pounds, I need to be 92. But for me, it was like, no, I'm cured. You can't be a fat person and weigh 94 pounds. So I went out and bought a pound of salted cashews and doubled my weight in an unbelievably short period of time. I don't even say how short a period because people think I made it up, but I was there and it was a very short period of time. So what finally happened when, when I did get recovery, I knew that if I did what the people told me in OA, if I really put my life on a spiritual basis seriously, because I'd always thought I was spiritual, I was always very interested in mysticism and philosophy and different religions and all that kind of thing. But I still worshipped food. <laughs> that was where I went when I, when I really, uh, when push came to shove, it was me and the brownies. So that happened. And as soon as that happened, as soon as I made that surrender, like they talk about in 12-step programs, I knew that I could be vegan. And that it was perfectly okay for me to be vegan. And part of my surrender, I was just, I was hurting so badly. And I felt that it was so impossible for me because I'd been struggling with this since early childhood. And at the time that this finally happened for me, I had a, a baby. She was about eight months old. And I, I knew that I I couldn't raise this child if I were a practicing addict. I mean, I was so desperate. And, and I just prayed with this total abandon of, okay, God, whatever. If you want me to eat meat, if I, I don't care. Just, just make me free. And then I knew you can be vegan. It's cool for you to be vegan. I never told you you couldn't be vegan. <laughs> And, um, and so a day at a time, that was, was really how it started for me. And the blessings have just been astronomical. Yeah, amazing. And I think just to go back to 
with the with the food or with any addiction really it's about addressing the underlying issues so what you're eating doesn't necessarily matter if the under if the underlying um, spiritual disease that led to the addiction mm-hmm. has been addressed in yeah. whatever ways you're able to address that whether it's through therapy whether it's through 12 step whether it's through your own inner self-inquiry practice of self-acceptance whatever it is then the food issue is going to go away and it doesn't exactly. matter what you're eating at that point because you're not eating in a disordered way because there isn't a disorder underlying the issue amen and hallelujah <laughs> I, like one of my favorite quotations it, it's um antiquated so there it's not in feminist wording but blaise pascal said there is a god-shaped hole in every man that only god can fill and i think that that's true for whatever we're seeking outside ourselves and you know you don't have to use the word god you can do whatever you want with that but it's so literal with compulsive eating because unlike some other addictions where you can drink and get drunk or you can take drugs and, and get high or low or whatever you want to get with food, it only works while you're shoving it in. There, there's no kind of place to get. And that's so frustrating. And it's so frustrating to be so full and so uncomfortable but still needing to take more in because that's where you think the peace is coming from. Yeah. Wow. Um, and it is through this experience that you decided pretty early in your life also you were not going to drink yeah. because you could sense that here was something else that could become problematic yeah. for you. Well, I actually decided that quite a bit earlier. I I knew, well, first I decided that I wouldn't smoke. And that was still at the time, late 60s, when smoking was still considered sophisticated and all that. And... I was sharing a flat in Belgravia with a Playboy bunny who had gone off to Scotland for the weekend with a TV personality who shall remain nameless and my fabulous over-the-knee vinyl boots, but she left her package of fabulous French cigarettes. And I had a showdown with those because I was sitting there looking at them and thinking, what indulging in that particular habit could do for me. Number one, it could make me lose weight because that was the conventional wisdom. But then it would also make me very sophisticated because they were French. And and it was like arguing back and forth, almost like that story in the Bible where Jesus is out in the desert and the devil comes and tries to tempt him with bread. And I was talking back to these cigarettes and finally came to, you know what? You're an addict already. You are a food addict. And this was 1968. Nobody was talking about food as an addiction. But I knew that I was a food addict. And I knew that if I started smoking or if I got very interested in drinking, I could just go really the wrong way. So it's interesting to me that even in my disease, there was enough wisdom there, enough divine connection that I didn't really get started on either of those things. I I did have um, a glass of wine in a water glass uh, at that same period of my life, when I was about 18, and 
went out with my friend and, and I had flatulence. And it was like, oh my God, I try so hard to be sophisticated. And I finally did this wine thing and now I, I'm passing gas. This is the worst thing ever. I never want to drink again. So my relationship with alcohol has been very much as you talk about in, in your work. I've never sworn off because there was nothing to swear off of, but I almost entirely avoid it. You know, I'll have champagne at a wedding, something like that. I'm not someone that feels very good when I drink. I'm one of those people who gets headaches from white wine. I get very sleepy from alcohol. And I hear people talk about how good it makes you feel and how you get all loosened up and social. And I'm thinking, but what if you're sleeping? So, um, I, and I'm grateful for that. And never had um, a lot of friends who drank or or were really so much into that. Never minded if they did. It just wasn't my culture. But but I do see that more in recent years, alcohol has become more of a thing socially. And I think I, I told you the story about being out uh, for dinner with a lot of, of people. And everybody went around the table and ordered their alcohol. It was a Chinese restaurant, so I ordered green tea. And this woman sitting near me, a professional woman in her 70s, said to me, well, you're no fun. And I thought, this is really interesting. And I knew about your work by then and thought, you know, this could be really difficult if if you kind of like to drink. And I don't even like it, but I thought it was a weird thing to be told. Mm. Absolutely. I think it's very interesting because I used to be one of those people who loved the way alcohol made me feel. At least I thought I did. But now it does the same thing to me. It makes me feel slow. It makes me feel sleepy. It makes me feel uncomfortable in my body, which is the opposite of what I used to use it for. And I think, again, in a way, so many of the things I was using, the underlying reasons I was reaching for it have been addressed in me. So yeah, I found that alcohol really doesn't have a particularly desirable effect for me anymore either. It's like I've just completely lost the taste for it on on multiple, on all levels, really. And I think there's also something physical to that. As you live, I suppose the word clean life is a little bit uh, strong, but as you eat really good food, as you exercise, as you meditate you change at a cellular level and then any exogenous substance is going to act differently on the physical body of that person that it did on your physical body when you were living in a different way physically as Mm. as well as uh, emotionally and spiritually. Yeah, I've often thought that um, I feel like I've sensitized myself by removing so many of the the toxic, nasty things that my body was just used to Mm -hmm. processing there's yeah the, the 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 toxic effect of alcohol is so much more pronounced to me now yeah <laughs> so I would love to hear a bit I remember what last time we met you were talking to me about how you used to host sober vegan parties that people <laughs> loved and I remember when I was first really committing to not drinking and and my husband was on the same path as me and we were both not eating meat um we're not 100% vegan, as you know, but we're getting further and further down that path too. And we would joke about wanting to open a bar that was 
had just vegan snacks and alcohol-free beer and we were going to call it the killjoy because <laughs> we're like this is what we want like why because at the time we were you know living in Williamsburg we were frustrated that most of the restaurants had very meat heavy menus that very few places served alcohol-free like op, had good alcohol-free options and it was just it was frustrating it's like come on people catch up with the times but then you told me you used to host these parties with vegan food and no alcohol and people loved them oh absolutely and and I'm going to be doing that again uh, yeah uh, I've had a chat with my husband and he, he was really meeting him and he's somebody who's always enjoyed wine and he's lived all over Europe and been in business and did that whole thing that that people do out there in the world and so I was like okay I'm not going to do meat but having some wine is not going to hurt anybody but I'm I'm coming to the point now in my life I'm about to turn 70 and I really want to live with the highest degree of integrity that I can and part of that is not offering in my space something to someone else that I wouldn't want to go into my body if they want to go next door because we actually have a wine bar next door great go next door you know enjoy yourself support the neighborhood but I want this particular space to be a zone of peace on every level, a zone of healing. So yeah, back then, uh, I didn't even think of my parties as being sober and vegan because they were just what they were. And everybody came. I had this great reputation for parties because my daughter, when she was a little girl, was very interested in international vegan cuisine. So we would learn how to do Ethiopian and Middle Eastern and all these various kinds of foods. And people would come and absolutely love it. And sometimes somebody would bring a boyfriend or somebody who was kind of like, I don't know, you're going to take me where for what? And more than once, one of these guys would say, you know, I'd mapped out where the closest McDonald's was thinking I was going to leave here hungry, but I actually feel pretty full. <laughs> and, and it's just nobody missed it. You know, I mean, we had sparkling water and Martinelli's cider and wonderful dishes. Like one of my favorite vegan dishes to this day to, to serve for a group is mushroom stroganoff because mm. it has this kind of meaty texture and this sort of richness that, that people really love. And I think if you're making people happy, unless you really are dealing with somebody who's addicted and is looking around for the alcohol because it's five o'clock and they need it, it, it's it's a joy and it's a delight and it's an uplift. And I see this in vegan restaurants around New York City, particularly the upscale vegan restaurants, where I know that if you were to do a little interview at each table and find out who was vegan, not many people at all. They were just going out for this kind of dining experience tonight. And I, I loved providing that, and I love um, the prospect of providing it again. Well, I hope I'll be invited. Oh, you will indeed. <laughs> you and your husband, yes. who will open this fabulous Killjoy bar Absolutely. and just make a living. I don't like that phrase, make a killing. Besides, <laughs> it's a vegan. Is... <laughs> yeah. Make a living, make Making a life. Making a killing is not a vegan phrase. No. <laughs> I think that's fantastic and I you know I really hope we, we touched before when we spoke on how I think the way that veganism has progressed over the past sort of three decades 
I think we'll hopefully see a similar progression in terms of alcohol-free lifestyle with just more and more options coming onto the market to make it easier for people. Yes. Whether they identify as sober and abstinent or whether they're just choosing that for tonight. You exactly. Know? And that's why I'm so excited about what you do. And I had some familiarity with... Um, this approach because I did have a, a gentleman on my podcast who had started one year no beer mm. in, in the UK and it was such a fascinating idea to me because I think that it, it, it's like so many other things you might want to do it but you don't want to be somebody who does it. it it's sort of like if your idea of a vegan is somebody who's either angry or they're an old hippie or a leftover punk rocker or whatever it is that you have. Ooh, I don't want to be that because it's that. I'd love to eat the food, but I don't want to be that. And I think it's the same with not drinking or rarely drinking. It's like, well, I don't want to be a killjoy, but I'd love to feel clean and clear and bright and fresh. And so the fact that you and, and when you're no beer and, and, and people are out there making this a trend, and you talked about that earlier, you used that word in terms of, of veganism, and I know it's a double-edged sword in one way, because if you're trending one year, then you're not trending the next, and yet I do believe that these trends can bring large numbers of people on board, and then they can set this way of being in the culture as a valid lifestyle choice. And that's how everything changes. Exactly. Every every movement or every shift begins as a trend in a certain direction. If you think about a trend meaning a movement towards one direction, then every movement, yeah, goes on to create a lasting shift or bring more people on board, like you said. I wanted to, I'm curious as to your thoughts about you know, initiatives like we have Veganuary now in the UK. I don't know if that's a thing here, but it's starting to be Veganuary and, you know, Meatless Mondays, these sorts of things, which are sort of inviting people to dip their toe into the lifestyle. Are you, I, I, assuming that you are approving of these sorts of things, (laughs) very much. How, but you know, is it, is it, yeah, is that, is it a good thing? Is it, giving people a kind of, oh, I can tick the vegan box and then go back to my old ways, you know. (laughs) I think that, as I say, you can never step into the same river twice. If you've ever done Veganuary and you have lived as a vegan for 31 days, you're different. You're different physiologically, you're different emotionally, and especially if you've been educating yourself during that time about why you're doing it. And also about cuisine and about health and about all these wonderful things, then even if you don't stay 100%, you're a different person. And when you do it next year, you're going to come a little bit closer. So I think it's wonderful. I think it's so much like being sober curious that it's not signing a pledge, but it's inviting a new way of life into your life. And people come to things differently. Sometimes someone will see a video online about a slaughterhouse or um, common animal agricultural practices that are just horrific, and that's all it takes. They are vegan the next day. And other people, they hear something, they see something, they say, well, I'm, I'm drinking flax milk well cool and then the next time it's like yeah have you ever tried the just egg and so it's all valid you know we change in different ways 
But there was a beautiful phrase that I learned from a spiritual teacher a long time ago. He loved to use it, and he would say, there is an upward progression of the universe, and you want to be part of that, and you want to be on that upward track. You want to be part of promoting the upward progression of the universe. And I think that it's just like that. You know, it's not like, well, I'm going to be the only person that saves the planet. No, no, no. But I want to make some choices today that are on the side of the upward progression of the universe. I love that. Thank you for that quote. That's beautiful. (laughs) I want to be on that. Um, And it reminds me, actually, so I first interacted with your work when you published The Good Karma Diet. What number book was that for you? Oh, gosh, (laughs) that would have been 12. Wow. (laughs) So it's so inspiring. I hope to have 12 books out one day. But the Good Karma Diet, and this is when I was, you know, first creating my platform, The Numinous, and I was very interested in everything I could find to have a more spiritual approach to my life. And this is about a spiritual approach to your diet. And I was just rereading the introduction, and you make this really valid point. If we acted as truly rational beings, you would only take those actions, dietary and other, otherwise, that result in positive outcomes. This is, and it relates to that quote that you just, you know, if we were truly rational and making what felt like the right decision, it would be the decision that has the pleasurable and positive outcome for all beings, right? Not just for us, but for all beings. And yet when it comes to food and when it comes to drink, and certainly when it comes to addiction, we are not in our rational minds. No. And this made me think as well, I think in the introduction, you also talk about, you know, the the layers of conditioning that we receive around eating meat as children from our families, from society, from culture. And I've thought a lot actually over the past few years about how we are actually sort of addicted to meat because meat eating is not rational. There are so many rational arguments against eating meat, whether it's for compassionate reasons, whether it's for environmental reasons, whether it's for health reasons, and yet people continue to eat meat. And it reminds me, and this is, I'll maybe include the link for this. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Ellsworth Wareham. Oh, yes. Who was the, I I mean, he was 98 at the time that I saw a YouTube video with him. I think he may have actually passed now several years ago. He did at 101. (laughs) And was still a practicing heart surgeon to the end. And a vegan for 50 years. And he said, you know, in, in this video that... He would have patients who have had multiple, you know, heart bypass surgeries and terrible sickness and would be willing to do anything except quit eating meat. Why is meat so addictive? Mm. Why is it so, it's so hard for people to imagine not eating meat or not eating dairy products? Well, it's very much part of the culture and I think it's also part of our history. But when you think about other irrational practices that are absolutely accepted, the one that comes to mind for me first is war. Hmm. At least at this time in history, of all the bizarre ways to solve conflict, it, it makes absolutely no sense. There, there is no rational argument for why intelligent people in the 21st century still think that that is a way to deal with conflict. But of course we do. And and there are all these arguments about having a strong defense and all that. And I understand, yes, you have to have a strong defense as long as you live in a world that has war. But if you lived in a world that didn't have war, then you wouldn't need that. You'd have all these resources for other things. So meat eating is not the only irrational thing that's going on. But what's really interesting is like war, meat eating is very, very 
violent. And I say this with all due respect to people who have not come to the vegetarian way of seeing things yet. Certainly for, for me, I spent 19 years eating meat and another 11 or 12 years uh, eating animal products besides meat. So I was in that and practicing it and supporting those industries myself for a really long time. And yet it's really buying into violence. And when you really get it, that you're eating violence, you're eating pain, you're eating suffering. And there are also some spiritual teachings that suggest that when you do that, you're taking into your own body the pain and fear poisons. And that perhaps one reason, this comes from uh, Charles Fillmore, who was a spiritual teacher back in the 1800s. And, and he said that one reason he was vegetarian, back when it was really hard in the 1890s in Missouri, uh, <laughs> was because this dis of ease that people felt, the anxiety, what, um, and he talked about, you know, the stresses of modern life, modern life in the 1890s, that some of that could theoretically be from taking in all of this pain and this fear. So I think we do it because we don't know what else to do. We are taught to do it as very small children. We're taught to do it at a pre-verbal state. If you talk to almost any parent who has tried to introduce the strained lamb and the strained liver and all that to a baby, they just push it away and push it away and push it away until they finally get tired and say, okay, whatever, you're bigger than me. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Really good points there. <laughs> I actually... In terms of cheese, which, as you know, is is still on my menu, um, and what you said earlier, actually, I hadn't ever heard that put so plainly before, that for a cow to give milk, she has to give birth, which is, that's given me some really good framing around my own cheese addiction. And I do think of it as an addiction. And I actually had to Google this earlier because I wanted to check that I hadn't been mistaken. But I think a report came out about five years ago, it did because I was reading about it earlier, that showed that cheese is as addictive as cocaine because of the way that it interacts with our opiate kind of indicators in the brain. Yes. What's that all about? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a wonderful book by Neil Barnard, MD, and it may be called Cheese Addiction, but I think it's called something else. But anyway, yeah. it's about cheese, so I, I highly recommend that. So here's the deal. All mammalian milk contains a substance called casomorphin. It's a very, very mild opiate, thus the word morphine, as mm. in morphine. So it's in mother's milk, it's mm. in everybody's milk, very low level. And, and human milk has almost the lowest level. And other milks that are growing bigger animals have more. Now, why is it there? Why would nature put an opiate in what we're gonna give to newborns? Well, it's to encourage the baby to go back and nurse. So cow's milk has a higher level proportionally of, of casomorphins than human mother's milk. And when you concentrate that milk to make cheese or ice cream, you're getting so much more of it than the baby cow <laughs> is getting, or, or even than, than if you were just drinking a liquid milk. 
I think there's more, though, than the quesomorphins that make cheese so addictive. It's also a very addictive flavor. It's sour and it's salty. So as a compulsive eater, I can tell you that the recipe for a binge food is sweet and fatty or salty and fatty or sour and fatty. And people will sometimes say, oh, I'm a sugar addict. And I say, oh, wow, you eat sugar cubes? Oh, no, no. Uh, Tic Tacs, no. Cough drops, no. (laughs) It's like, well, then how could you be a sugar addict? This is all pure sugar. You're not even eating it. They say, no, it's like cookies and ice cream. Well, that's sugar and fat. The same with salt. Nobody's pouring it into their hands out of a salt shaker, but we're having it in, in French fries and chips and that kind of thing. So with cheese, it's salt and sour, that umami flavor. And guess what else is a big old umami flavor? Red wine. And that doesn't even have the fat in it. So we have to have the peanuts on the side or the cheese and the crackers to really have a lovely umami feast. So cheese was one of my biggest binge foods. I mean, I could just take a big old block of it and, and just, you know, have it. You know, I started to say, slice it up and have it. Well, I would slice it up if I wasn't really binging. If I was really binging, who needs to slice it? And even now, even with these wonderful vegan cheeses, and some of them are so good, you could feed them to French people. But I find that I do need to really be in fit spiritual condition if I'm going to have a lot of even vegan cheese in the house. Not because it has quesomorphin in it. It doesn't. But just because... It's salty and fatty and sour and heavenly. It's interesting to me, we talk about spirituality and all these various addictions and and inclinations that maybe aren't addictions, but maybe they're inclinations we don't need and how we call alcohol spirits. Mm. And with something like this cheese, it is so heavenly. Maybe I need to be getting more of my heaven in other ways so I don't need to be getting it from cheese, vegan or dairy. I love that you picked up on your use of the word heavenly because I thought that was very poignant too. And you mentioned you need to be very spiritually fit and that's language from 12-step programs I know. How do you describe spiritual fitness and how do you stay spiritually fit? I think of spiritual fitness as being open every single day to the fact that life has meaning and that I am not running everything. And to me, the level of spiritual fitness required to maintain my abstinence, which is the OA word for sobriety when it comes to food, it's not huge. There are times when I don't meditate, and there are times when I get really snitty, and there are times when I hold on to a resentment for hours. (laughs) But I have learned in the program not to go to bed with a resentment. I I have learned my favorite step probably, well, they're all wonderful, but in the 12 steps, I love the 10th step, which says that when these things crop up that are troublesome, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, that we ask God at once to remove them. We uh, talk to somebody else if necessary. 
um, and I'm skipping one of them. And the fourth one is then resolutely turn your thoughts to someone you can help. It's just like this, this formula for this is what I need to do to not go off the deep end. And it doesn't mean being holly holy or, you know, going off to silent meditation retreats every month or two. It, it just means keeping my life marginally functional in, in a spiritual way and in relationship to the other people and the other beings in my world. Mm. That's really beautifully explained and very clear as well. And I like the fact that, because I think hearing that spiritually fit, it, it can conjure visions of needing to have, you know, extensive spiritual practice and prayer and all of this stuff. But you're talking about just, again, it comes back to integrity so much of it, doesn't it? Like really having integrity between your actions, your thoughts, your words, and, and being able to, yeah, really trust yourself. It's really true, and I love that word, integrity. Mm. It's just one of my favorite words because it means you're all together. You're, you know, sometimes you'll get dressed, and then I'll like say, "Oh goodness, I forgot gloves or something in in the winter," and I'll reach into the closet and I'll pull out. I have a pair of green gloves. They're for Christmas and St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> and any other day they look really silly. And maybe I'm wearing my bright blue coat that I absolutely love, wonderful vegan coat from Vote Couture. Oh, she does beautiful things. (laughs) But I've got this gorgeous blue coat, and then I have my silly green gloves. So that, to me, is a beautiful or very unbeautiful image of what lack of integrity looks like. And integrity is everything working together. And there's no perfection. There's certainly no perfection in me. So I'm never going to have a day where it's 100%. But the great and glorious thing is I don't have to be 100%. I just have to be on the right side of 50. Yeah, right. And doing your part. And I think that the vegan lifestyle does speak so much to integrity because it really takes into account all organisms as part of the whole that we, of this earth that we all inhabit together, you know? Um, Yeah. So some, I actually want to backtrack something you said about the cheese. That was a fantastic explanation and really, and I think just having that information and feeling educated fully about what the cheese thing about is about is a really great tool in terms of the one, st- one day at a time when it comes to the cheese, right? right. I'm definitely going to try some of the vegan options that you, um, that you mentioned as well. But it makes me think what you, I didn't know that about the, um, the, the mild opiate effect of mammalian milk. Going back to Ellsworth Wareham in the video that I watched with him, he talks about how actually every taste is an acquired taste. Everything is an acquired taste except for breast milk, except for our mother's milk. <laughs> it's the only thing that we're kind of hardwired to find delicious and want to drink is the mother's milk, the mammalian milk. <laughs> Everything else is an acquired taste. And he obviously applied that to eating meat when people say, but I just love the taste of it. You've learned to love the taste of it and you can unlearn to love the taste of it. And I think the same can be applied to alcohol for people who are like, I just really love the taste of wine. And you've learned to love the taste of wine because you associate it with certain experiences or feelings and you can unlearn to love the taste of it as well. <laughs> exactly. And, and the first taste of it is usually 
not great. Can I just back up and say the thing that I forgot? Yeah. Thank goodness for Google. <laughs> okay, so continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately, and here's the one I forgot, and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. I think that just describes spiritual fitness. It does. That's step 10. Great. Did you make amends to animals you had harmed when you were doing your amends? I did, actually. Mm. Yeah. And it's just something that we don't think about. And it's one of those Mm. things that isn't conscious. It's not like, oh, I'm going to get up today and really make life hell for some pig. No, it's just life. And and we don't see bacon and pig. I was so touched a few years ago, it was summertime, and a lot of women were having lunch at an outdoor cafe, and most of them were having salad with some kind of chicken mm-hmm. on it, and someone noticed an injured pigeon. And oh my goodness, everybody rallied round and one person was getting a box from the kitchen and somebody was calling the rehab center, somebody else was hailing a cab and everything stopped because this suffering creature all of a sudden was the most important thing happening. But then everybody went back to eating their salad with their chicken. And so when I make amends to the animals that I harmed, by eating them, it's different layers. You know, there were the ones that I ate before I really had any idea. And then there were the ones that I ate after I knew better. And the best amend to me is a living amend. Because, you know, very often people will say, oh, well, no, I'm I'm not a a vegetarian or a vegan, but I sure pray for the soul of that animal. It's like, Mm. you know, if... If the mugger prayed for me after hitting me over the head, I would have preferred that he just didn't didn't do it. <laughs> so So you just to be clear, you're talking about I know I've heard people talk about this. I have a burger, but I give thanks to that that cow for giving me its strength, for yeah. nourishing me with its blood, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, yeah. I mean, that's bull crap. I mean, that's And I know a lot of people are going to say, but that's what the Native Americans did. Well, are you a Native American in 1820? And there's, um, I produced a film called A Prayer for Compassion that is to introduce people who identify as religious or spiritual to uh, vegan living. And we had a wonderful, wonderful Native American woman, Linda G. Fisher, who's a member of the Ojibwe Nation. And she said that We have this idea that Native American people were eating all meat all the time when they really didn't. And depending on their region, some of them ate very little meat. And and those who did, of course, they had the reverence because they were there in this natural setting. It was a different time. It was a different place. It was a different circumstance. But for those of us living in cities and suburbs and college towns and all these places where we are right now, we can live so well and be so healthy and live so long and vibrantly without it that it's almost like we're we're honoring all life. You know, we are connected. That's the thing. And that's, I think, what the people are trying to say who say, well, I pray for the the soul of the animal. That is an acknowledgement that we are connected. 
But because we're connected, we all have a role to play in the ecosystem. And humans are not designed or have not evolved, however you want to describe or see that, to be carnivores. We have been very successful omnivores. I mean, we have certainly, you know, been fruitful and multiplied and, you know, filled <laughs> up the earth. And yet, we've done it in a way that the last 20 years or so of most people's lives are awful. They're in this state that the doctors call morbidity. They're in and out of hospitals. They're in nursing homes. This whole idea of, oh, just wait till I retire and I'm going to travel and I'm going to do all this stuff. A whole lot of people don't get to do that because even though our, our bodies, in terms of how long it takes for a human to mature, we ought to live to be 100 years old. In fact, some people say we really ought to live to be 120. I'm not sure about that. But what happens is people start breaking down in their 40s and 50s. And people in their 60s who aren't taking any drugs are just seen as not taking care of themselves. I had a friend, now she was older, she was in her late 70s, but she went to a, a dermatologist to get a, a little uh, a mole taken off. And the doctor came storming in, she'd never even met this woman, and she said, it's absolutely outrageous that a woman your age would not be on any medication. And my friend, who's just really quick, said, well, what do you suggest I start with, Viagra? <laughs> so th these are choices when we honor the animals, when we live and let live, when we allow them to live their lives unmolested and free, and when we're not breeding them, obviously, you know, there's so many of them are mm -hmm. living just to be tortured and killed. When we get out of that business, when we're no longer using our money to support it, we have this freedom. And I think it's very similar to the freedom that some people will recognize from being sober curious, that when you're into the thing where you feel like, well, I have to drink, everybody else is doing it, it's expected. And then all of a sudden, you make your own decisions. Do I want to or don't I want to? It's nobody else's business. Then you have this freedom. And you have that kind of freedom, too, when you get out of the animal food business. And then I think you also get a little bit of help from uh, the great spirits of those wonderful animals who know you're on their side. Mm. I would love if you could speak a bit to, because I'm sure lots of people listening to this, wherever they are on the the veg curious spectrum will be feeling really inspired I certainly am um, to to really step more fully into the vegan path and I wonder if you could speak a bit to what you find to have found over the past 35 years to be the most convincing arguments for people and maybe that has changed I'll, I'll from my own experience you know it began with um becoming aware of the environmental impact of animal agriculture and again just having a real wake-up call of like this is crazy what we're doing to the planet in term just to feed this this unnecessary addiction to meat then I stopped eating meat and noticed immediately how much healthier I felt just how much more energized how much my digestion had improved etc and it's only really more recently in the past couple of years I think as I've become more sober actually the 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 animal rights issue the compassion issue is becoming much more to the fore for me and I wonder if, yeah, I'd love to hear over the years what you have found to be the real turning point arguments for people, the things that really do stick and make it seem like absolute common sense. Yes. 
I think it depends on the individual. In fact, someone that used to teach at a program I run, Main Street Vegan Academy, he's moved away now, wonderful guy, Michael Parrish Dudell. He wrote Shark Tank, Jumpstart Your Business. He worked with the Shark Tank guys to do that. But he would say that when you're telling somebody that you're vegan, you watch their body language and see what happens. So you say, well, like you said, I, I went vegan because I was really concerned about the environment. And if they're just like, yeah, right, the environment looks okay to me, then you say, and then I really started to feel a lot healthier. And if they kind of perk up with that one and come a little bit closer, then you can kind of follow that. And then if they're still kind of like, yeah, right, and you say the animals, and they're like, well, wait a minute, I'm, I'm really into animals. I volunteer at the Humane Society. Then you follow that one. So, and, and those are just the big ones. And mm. other people, certainly some people come for spiritual reasons. I went vegetarian because of, of yoga. Um, I was reading yoga books at 17. And they said, if you're going to be serious, you have to practice ahimsa, that beautiful Sanskrit word for reverence for life, for nonviolence, non-killing. Uh, some people come at it that way. Some people are just aesthetically turned off of meat. A lot of people say, oh, I, when I lived at home, I had to eat it. But as soon as I got out, when I had my own kitchen, I didn't want that in there. So I think on the one hand, it's very individual. But I also think we can really take advantage of this trending that we talked about before in the young and liberal kind of world that many of us move in. The environment is so pressing. And really, for anybody for whom it isn't pressing, we're wearing blindfolds. And so to, to stand up about that and what I see as a speaker and I go around speaking about veganism all over everywhere. And I say, you know, what made you vegan? And it's about 50-50 health and animals. Mm -hmm. And you'll get one or two people with the environment. And that's growing. I would say five years ago, it was one. Three years ago, it was two. Now with Greta Thunberg, bless her heart, it might be four or five. But it's still basically animals and health. And I think we have to be very savvy about how we approach it. So if you're going into, for example, um, a church uh, where a lot of, of clergy are concerned about the health of, of their parishioners, then the health is going to be the thing. And you can throw in something on the side like it's nice to animals and the planet, but they're really focused on their people and their diabetes and their heart disease. So you go there. And, and with, I think, particularly young people, and particularly in the UK. In the UK, very few people are doing it, even now, for health. The animal thing has always been big. But it's all the same. And the other thing that's so beautiful about it is you start to do it, or kind of sort of do it, whatever you're doing, you know, reducitarian or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I haven't had that you one before. You open the door... And you see what's back there. And maybe you did it for one reason, and then you find everything else. It's it's thrilling. It is. It's a great it adventure. Is. And I love that you're so passionate about it. <laughs> After 35 years, there's one other subject that feels very timely to touch on before we wrap up. Um, as we're recording this, coronavirus is all anyone can talk about. Mm -hmm. And what I keep thinking is, why is no one talking about the fact that this comes from 
animal farming, animal mm. agriculture. Yes. These diseases, all these coronavirus, all these epidemics, they begin with catching diseases, animal diseases, ultimately from eating diseased meat yes. or from, you know, intensive farming of these animals. That's not being spoken about, and I think it needs to be mentioned. It is for sure. It's not being spoken about nearly enough. I'm very proud that one of my Main Street Vegan Academy graduates did have an op-ed last week in the New York Daily News Mm. called Shuttering uh, the Slaughterhouses. Because there are slaughterhouses here in New York City. You know, most people think slaughterhouses are stuck way far away. We never have to think about those. But they have them right here. They have some in Chicago, lots of of large cities, as well as as rural areas. And she talked in this article about the uh, understanding at this point that the coronavirus did start in China with the most trafficked animal in the world. And I'm not going to come up with the name of it. It's an animal I had never heard of before. But evidently, it's a kind of, of, it's a mammal that's kind of an anteater. And it has scales that are used in Chinese medicine. So this is one of the animals most of us have never heard of. And now look what's happened. Um, And also the bear bile, the same thing. It's believed that it can uh, help with male virility. And all these bears throughout Asia are kept in these terrible, terrible circumstances where they're basically operated on every day. You can look on Animals Asia if you want to help the bears. And, And so yeah, it, it's it's almost karma, as we talk about the good <laughs> karma diet, that we do these terrible things to animals, and then here's what we get. And I'm sure it's all very scientific, and that there are reasons that people who have a more scientific education than I can describe of why these many viruses and not, I mean, measles, I mean, everything way back whenever it started was uh, transferred from our close association with another being in a way that we were not supposed to be associated with Mm -hmm. them, which is eating them. You know, that's the most intimate relationship you have when you take something into your body and it becomes your body. And we're to the point now, you know, this is not... 500 years ago, although there were some amazing vegetarians 500 years ago, I mean, longer than that, Pythagoras, the father of vegetarianism, he figured it out, and the theorem. But now, we no longer need this. This was either always wrong, or it used to be okay, and now it just makes no sense. Mm. So let's stop. It makes no sense for us or for the planet. I also couldn't help be struck by the correlation here, think about how at the end of last year, we were all devastated that the lungs of the earth were on fire, the Amazon is on fire, largely due to the decimation of the forest for animal agriculture. And now our lungs are under attack from this coronavirus. Oh, oh you must of write karma, that. Speaking of oh. karma though, you know? That's exquisite, Ruby. Mm. That is not a connection that I made. Oh, please write that. Well, it's here on the podcast for now. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I'll write something on that too. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your work, your voice, your enthusiasm, your spirit. I'm happy to know you, Victoria. Oh, I'm so happy to know you. I'm just honored that um, our paths have crossed.
and thank you as always for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can DM me on Instagram if you have any specific feedback or to let me know about a topic you would like me to cover. And if you feel called, you can also leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help more people find this series. It really does help. The Sober Curious podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.